I'd like to share with you a poem. The poem is from 1927, and it was written by one of the best writers of American history, the great Langston Hughes, one of the most iconic members of the Harlem Renaissance, an essential voice in black literature in the early parts of the 20th century. Langston was my age when he wrote this poem, 26 years old, showing a wisdom and awareness well beyond his years. I'd love to read you the poem myself, but there's someone much more exciting who should guide you through Langston's words. So today, this poem will be read by Arma Bontemps. Arma was also a member of the Harlem Renaissance. He was in his early 20s when he joined up with the Renaissance in the early 1920s and worked with many figures from that era, including Langston Hughes and our friend, the subject of today's episode, the great Florida writer Zora Neale Hurston. We'll come back to her in a moment. Arma worked and wrote with them at the same time as so many other creatives were working in New York. The Harlem Renaissance was a time for many black artists in the 1920s to write, study, and create art about their lived experiences and the work that came from that period, influenced culture for decades to come to this very day. But Arma did something very interesting later in his life during the 1940s at Fisk University in Tennessee. You see, Arma Bontemps started collecting the art and archived work by African-American artists from this period, especially Langston Hughes. At some point during that time, he collected and read a great number of these writings, these poems by black artists, to be recorded as a sort of folk album for kids. So in that project, Arma Bontemp read several of these poems, recorded them, and one he recorded was this one. It's called Florida Road Workers. It was written by Langston Hughes. So here's Arma Bontemp reading Langston Hughes' piece, Florida Road Workers. A hard work poem called Florida Road Workers by Langston Hughes. I'm making a road for the cars to fly by on. Making a road through the palmetto thicket for light and civilization to travel on. I'm making a road for the rich old white men to sweep over in their big cars and leave me standing here. Sure, a road helps everybody. Rich folks ride, and I get to see them ride. I ain't never seen nobody ride so fine before. Hey, buddy, look at me. I'm making a road. In the summer of 1927, Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston took off on a road trip. In that road trip, they would collect experiences and memories and songs, things from life in Southern America, including Florida. We talked about this trip this time last year and all the incredible things that these artists experienced wandering the roads of Old South Florida. Zora is an iconic Florida writer. We've talked about her so much on this show, but in case this is your first Zora story, Zora is one of the most prolific black writers of the 20th century who wrote about her life growing up in Eatonville, Florida, a town in Central Florida that is widely considered to be the oldest black incorporated municipality in the country. She wrote an extremely important novel during her time, Their Eyes Were Watching God, on top of many other novels and books, and on top of being one of the most essential anthropologists of her generation, collecting music, stories, and folk of all kind. She compiled many pieces of art about the folk stories and interviews and song collections that she did in her travels throughout Florida and Southern America. Collecting stories was just as much a part of her creative life as creating her own new fictions, such as Their Eyes Were Watching God. 
Langston Hughes was no different, though poetry was much more his focus, as you can tell from the poem mentioned earlier. Langston saw life on the road with Zora that influenced his arts. The real world of people living in the South, in Florida, influenced the art that they both created afterwards, not just the anthropology that they did in capturing these stories. But what Langston and Zora didn't know when they set off on that trip in the summer of 1927 was not only would their art be influenced by this trip for the rest of their careers, but this art would eventually lead to the end of their friendship. And the fallout of that would change Zora's career forever. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2023. Welcome to our spring season and welcome to our fifth anniversary year. This upcoming July will be five years since the show got started. That is unbelievable to me. So much has changed since 2018 in my life, in Florida, in the world. When this show started, everything was different around me. And and I'm so fascinated and proud of the life that I've gotten to live in the last five years making this show and sharing these stories with you. The great joy about doing this show every season is discovering how much there is I don't know. Every season, I'm still thrilled to share brand new stories with you, and this season is no different. This season is going to be a combination of things, some new stories, some follow-ups, just some adventures that I've been wanting to go on, some deep dives into history that I haven't gotten the chance to do, and some new faces, some new people that you haven't gotten to meet yet that I'm thrilled to share their stories with you, and the return of some familiar friends. But let's start this season off with a bang, a trip back into the life of Zora Neale Hurston, the feud with an artistic partner that influenced both their careers and brought Zora into a brand new chapter as an artist. If you do want some more backstory on Zora and her work as an anthropologist, I highly recommend listening to last year's episode. I won't be covering a lot of that period, a lot of that anthropology in this episode. We're going to be diving deeper into actually what happened afterwards. But if you want more of that backstory, sort of the first chapter, check out the link at the top of the episode to refresh yourself on Zora and her relationship to anthropology and folktales before we dive into this story. To begin our journey this week, we have to go to where I first read Zora's work, my alma mater, Rollins College, just up the road from Eatonville, Zora's hometown. In my four years in attendance at Rollins College, I had never paid the Rollins archive a visit, but a lead last year sent me back to my old campus. During last year's episode about Zora's time working in Orlando, I read that she had put on a production of some kind at Rollins in the 1930s. I reached out to the archives and was put in touch with Rachel Walton, who invited me to the archive to search through the boxes of Zora content they had within the archive. So I marched across the campus, noting how much cooler college students apparently dress now compared to about a decade ago, and I descended into the basement of the Rollins Library, the old Olin Library where I spent many sleepless nights finishing homework that should have been done days earlier. Par for the course, I think. Anyway, basement, by the way, I said the archive is in the basement. That's that's too strong a word. The building is built on a slope, so even though the bottom floor feels like you're below the surface of the earth, the archive actually looks out to the lake, which gives the study room a warm afternoon sunlight. I met with Rachel Walton and a professor, Wenshin Zhang, who was actually the head of the archive and special collections here in the library. 
He wrote one of the pieces I'll be citing in this episode, and he gave me a lot of guidance on Zora as he wrote about her for his piece titled Pathway to Diversity, the History of Race Relations at Rollins. I will include a link to that so you can read it yourself. It is a really wonderful piece. I was left with the boxes to study as Wenshin had another event that afternoon. He and a few other professors and students were off to do a dragon parade to honor the Lunar New Year. An actual paper dragon was involved. It emerged from an office while I sat there reading about Zora and it was led out into the library by a, a, a gaggle of giddy students. It was <laughs> it was pretty great. They apologized for disturbing my study, but it was a it was an absolute treat. No bother at all. I remember those dragon parades from my time at Rollins, and it was nice to see that they still took place. Once they had disappeared to celebrate the beginning of the Year of the Rabbit, I dug into the documents provided and found some pretty amazing stuff within. You see, Zora had found herself back in Orlando in the early 1930s under unusual circumstances. We know much of Zora's writing via her novels and books, and most of those were published in the 1930s, but some of her more prolific adventures and where she gained her early experiences as a writer was back in the 1920s during the Harlem Renaissance. That's where she developed her friendships with many other artists during this period, but most notably developed her friendship with poet Langston Hughes, who wrote the poem earlier in the episode. As I mentioned, they had traveled together in 1927, studying the people of the South and collecting their stories. Later on, as their professional anthropological interests turned artistic, Langston and Zora sought to create a play together, a representation of what they had learned and what they wanted to put into the world. If they could turn their anthropological studies into art, that would be a great success. They began working on a play together called Mule Bone. The play is actually set in Eatonville, Florida. It's about two men fighting over a woman and the conflict in the city over who takes whose side when the conflict turns to combat. It's a comedy and it was based on stories that Zora and Langston had found out on their trips. In the spring of 1930, all accounts suggest that they began working on the piece together. Sometime in the summer, however, the professional friendship began to dissolve and there's no real explanation as to why. There are many behaviors by both of them that give us some clue, but no clear answer is provided. Some theories suggest that Zora was close with her patron, a complicated woman named Charlotte Osgood Mason. There's theories that suggest that Mason had sort of poisoned the relationship between Zora and Langston, suggesting that Langston was not a good partner for Zora. That's just one theory. Another suggests that Langston wanted their typist, Louise Thompson, to be listed as a third collaborator on the project, which Zora was apparently no fan of. I have to say, if someone looks like they were behaving a little erratically and rudely, it was perhaps Zora Neale Hurston. Either way, Zora had left town with the incomplete work in the summer, and by the fall of 1930, Zora was attempting to copyright the play without including Langston's name, without including Langston at all. It was a Zora project exclusively under this copyright, which just was not the case. The play was starting to get considered for production in black theater companies in 1931, and Langston did not go down without a fight. He tried to add his name to the copyright, even as the play was beginning production in Cleveland, Ohio. The piece wasn't even completed. It wasn't even done. Zora just left before it was done, and Zora had registered it for a copyright and for production under her name, and the work was a rough text. Modern critics have stated their disinterest in the piece. I've not read it yet, though I hope to for next year's episode about Zora. 
Either way, the conflict was severe. What had been a few years of noted friendship and shared artistic expression suddenly became bitter resentment. The production in Cleveland never came to pass. It would be decades before it was mounted, and some accounts report that Zora and Langston never saw each other again. What caused the separation for certain we may never know. There's a book called Zora and Langston, a story of friendship and betrayal by Yuval Taylor. I'll give that a read and report back. I imagine it's not the happiest tale to read. What matters for our story going forward is that Zora clearly had developed a taste for creating a play, a staged production of the things she had learned out on the road. Apparently during those early years with Langston, as far back as their earliest trip in the mid-twenties, Zora wanted to put on a production of music and storytelling and opera of sorts. How to create the right form was difficult. A few versions had come and gone, but by the beginning of 1932, she had cracked some version of what she was trying to achieve. She mounted a production of some kind called The Great Day in New York, which only ran for one performance. She had great ideas and projects that were ready to launch, including a book manuscript that she was trying to get published, but everything was hitting a brick wall. The show put her in debt, her relationship with her patron was dwindling now, her friendships were disappearing, and the Great Depression was looming on the horizon. She needed an opportunity. She had lots of ideas, but nowhere to put them. And an opportunity arrived. She was put in touch with a professor, a man named Edwin Osgood Grover, who was actually working at an institution not far from Zora's hometown. He worked at Rollins College in Winter Park, just the next town over from Eatonville. Edwin Osgood Grover's title at Rollins was an unusual one. He was the professor of books. His specialty was books, whatever that is. Grover and Zora's correspondence included Zora speaking very passionately about her interests in mounting a folk show of some kind. She said in a letter, quote, I have lots of material prepared to this end, and I would love to work it out with the help of someone who knows a lot that I don't, end quote. See, Zora was an amazing writer. She had a vision. She had ideas, passion. She could sing herself. She, she knew the kind of things she was going for. But based on these letters, it seems like Zora wasn't confident in her ability to use the theatrical medium to tell her stories. So it seems that she needed someone who understood theater a little better and, and could give her a hand. Though I do think she was maybe underestimating her ability a little bit. She's she's a visionary. She's brilliant. So, but you know, she needed she felt she needed help, and there was someone who could give her a hand. A theater professor. All accounts refer to him as young, though it's unclear how young he was at the time. His name was Robert Wunsch. Wunsch is spelled W-U-N-S-C-H. I believe it's pronounced Wunsch. When he was put in touch with Zora, he was enthralled by the proposition of mounting her work at Rollins College with the support of the Blossoming Theater Department there. He had the backing of the college's president, a man named Hamilton Holt. If you attend Rollins College, you have heard the name Hamilton Holt a lot. Buildings, rooms, events, Hamilton Holt's name is everywhere at Rollins. Holtz was a man who, during this period as president of Rollins, was pushing for progressive education, trying to expose the students of Rollins to things that other institutions wouldn't be working toward. It was rare to have someone this liberal making these sorts of educational decisions in the 1930s. He was pushing the status quo. 
He had experience in progressive thought. He was a white man from Brooklyn, son of an attorney. Holt went to Yale and then Columbia. He worked at the Independent in New York for many years, and even was a part of the founding membership of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. He did that alongside other such critical historical figures as W.E.B. Du Bois and Ida B. Wells Barnett. I mean, Holt was around very important historical figures before he became the president of Rollins College. So, Holt had experience in pushing the envelope, especially when it came to race in America. Zora wanted to mount a production of black folklore and music, African dance and song, at a white school in 1932. Rollins wouldn't see integration in its student body for another 32 years. 1964 was the first black student at Rollins. But in 1932, the staff wanted to welcome Zora to put on a play of black art on their campus. Wunsch was thrilled at the idea of putting on Zora's show, and he sent a letter on October 29, 1932 to Hamilton Holt, suggesting putting on Zora's play. He believed that it would be an excellent opportunity for Zora herself, but also an educational opportunity for the students at Rollins. In the letter, he wrote that he wanted, quote, to present on our campus a program of folk material as indigenous to the Florida soil as are the moss-bearded oak trees. I know it will be an inspiration to the students, end quote. The production was to include artists and performers from Eatonville itself. In that same letter, Wunsch also wrote, quote, I can think of no better way to introduce the students to the honest-to-the-soil material at their own doorsteps than to present to them in a program of folk songs and dancers a group of Eatonville Negroes headed by Zora Hurston, end quote. Holt approved in his response, suggesting where the performance should take place, requesting that there be no vulgar material, and most notably saying, quote, of course, we cannot have Negroes in the audience unless there is a special place segregated for them, and I think that would be unwise, end quote. That's a founding member of the NAACP, a white progressive college president, suggesting that even a segregated audience was too much during a show about black Floridian music and story. His reasoning could be presented in the next line, which reads, quote, I do not think I would advertise it very much outside of our own faculty and students, but I may be wrong about this, end quote. The possibility of violence or protest during the performance of a black show could have been on Holt's mind. There's no way to know, but several letters I read indicated that there was some concern of danger in the form of groups, perhaps the Ku Klux Klan or similar violent white supremacist groups. No accounts of their presence at these productions was noted, but it clearly was on the mind of those approving the show's production. There was hesitance, a little wariness in the people making the decisions about Zora's show. Either way, Zora finally got to put on a play, and she got to do it in the same region as her beloved Eatonville, something which was very important to her, and she got to do it with artists and performers from Eatonville. Now, what did the show entail? Well, the good news for us is that the programs still exist. We know what songs were done in what scenes with what actors, including a song sung by Zora herself, a few songs sung by Zora herself. In act two, the song Evelina is sung, according to the program, by Zora. 
Well, the good news for you is that we have an audio recording of Zora singing this exact song. Not at Rollins College, mind you. This was in Jacksonville in 1939. Many of her recordings of her singing are in the Library of Congress. That's where this clip is from. You can check out the link and the source in the episode description. But here is Zora singing the song she performed in 1932 at Rollins College during her first show at the college. This is Evelina, sung by Zora Neale Hurston. Evelina, Evelina, you know the baby don't favor me. Hey, hey, you know the baby don't favor me. Evelina, Evelina, don't you tell your mama it belonged to me. Hey, hey, you know the baby don't favor me. So, like I was saying, what exactly is this show? I said it earlier, but she had done a show in New York already called The Great Day, which seems to be the same basic premise. It's a collection of these folk stories and songs that she had gathered in her work. But I have a transcript of the program for the new show, From Sun to Sun, that's what it was called, From Sun to Sun, and the idea of what she's doing here is very interesting. It seems to follow the structure of a day from beginning to end, sun to sun, you get it? It follows a group of laborers helping build a railroad. The first scene is a character called the Shack Rouser, who wakes the laborers and they all join in song as they get ready for work. Then they get to work at the railroad and they sing working songs, including a song sung by Zora, who plays a woman just passing by singing the blues. Then as evening approaches, they return to their quarters and dance, enjoying music and each other's company. When the sun sets in the second act, the cast is at a juke, like a, a juke joint, like a jukebox, where there's music and a dance floor and somewhere for everybody to hang out and have some fun. In this scene, there are also some instruments, a piano, a guitar, and there's also more dancing, more singing. This seems to be the most fun part of the show. Then the last scene is described as, quote, way in the midnight, place in the palm wood. End quote. So out in the forest, some more dancing, some more singing, some more traditional stuff. So there's some some songs that seem to be from the Bahamas that are in this part of the program. Uh, I'll play you a song from this section later on in the uh, episode, at the end of the episode. But it seems to me like the idea of what Zora was going for is showing how each of these songs have different genres, different different times, different settings where they are appropriate. These songs are not one note. They're not used for the same thing. They all have different purposes. And what she does, you know, some songs are morning songs, wake up songs. Some were work songs. Some were party songs. Some were a little more solemn with a little more meaning in them. Those are the ones you sing at midnight, the ones that have a little more a little more heart to them, right? It's truly brilliant how this, this piece was meant to reflect those distinctions, how the narrative showed us how each song had its own place within the culture through the structure of one day, just a normal day in the life of these laborers all over Florida. It's what makes Zora's writing and her skill as a storyteller so impressive. She was so intelligent. She was a visionary. She had so much information available to her that she knew was valuable. She wanted to teach it. But sometimes things are hard to put into something tangible. Something, sometimes it's hard to explain these things. Folk music doesn't have a set melody or even set lyrics. It's not formal. You can't write it down. That's why it's folk music. But what makes Zora's work so distinct and so lasting in my mind is that she was smart enough to figure out a way to communicate the ideas, the, the stories, the music she had learned. 
You can talk all day about how some songs are for work and some songs are for play, but if you put on a show where you literally see it, you, you don't have to imagine that the people who are singing these songs are doing it at work or doing it at play and how there's a different rhythm to them based on what the people singing them are doing. You're seeing it in front of you. It's genius. The show was met with rave reviews. The first performance seems to be on January 20th, 1933. It was done at, quote, a new experimental community theater, the museum in Fern Park, end quote. It was such a hit that they did more and more shows in the area, and then exactly 90 years ago, right about this time, end of January, early February, 1933, Zora moved the show to Rollins College in a building that does not exist anymore. It was called Recreation Hall, and it was on the back of the campus, right along beautiful Lake Virginia that borders the college. The building, as I said, does not exist anymore. It burned down when it was struck by lightning in March of 1960. The current theater on campus, the Annie Russell Theater, was just built that year in 1932. Its first season was that year, but the performance of Zora's show was instead in Recreation Hall. I am unclear why it was not in the Annie, but as I said, the show was extremely well received to the point that during the performance, the audience cheered so much when it was over that the performers did an encore. They came out and kept singing. There was obviously some less-than-kind things written in papers around the city. One writer named Will M. Trayer, who wrote for the Winter Park Herald, casually implies that the work is, quote-unquote, simple, and refers to some racist stereotypes when referring to the black characters in the show. It seems like, save for this one piece in the paper, the respect and praise for Zora's work rose above the noise, but as per usual, there was still some press for some quite racist reasons. A side note that I was delighted to stumble upon in the archives. <laughs> One of those things you can't really believe in. I was sitting in the archive giggling when I found this. This is an interdepartmental memo that was sent from president of the college, Hamilton Holt, to Mr. Bob Wunsch, the theater professor who helped produce the show. It was sent on January 28th, 1933, and this is what it says verbatim. Quote, That was a great performance in Recreation Hall last night. It was so good and so fine that it ought to be a little better. They need one or two strong women's voices. They need to keep their eyes much more to the audience, especially the preacher and the actors in the play. And they need to do their swinging more in unison. Some did it from the right side and some from the left side. If you would give them some training in that respect, it would be great. End quote. Listen, I did theater for 11 years. Everybody's always going to give you notes. Always. No matter what you do. Work on your swinging, everybody. The president didn't like the way everybody was swinging left and right. But what makes this memo even funnier to me is that after Holt levels these criticisms, you know, he wants to improve the show, allegedly. He, he then tosses in a very kind compliment. He says, quote, This movement that you have started here may spread all over the country. You have done a very creditable thing. End quote. In many ways, Holt was more right than he realized. The show would do multiple encore performances, including for special audiences, and allowed Zora to finally see her dream realized of putting on an opera of black folk stories and music with the cast made up of people from her own town. It also rapidly raised her profile, her status in the artistic and literary worlds. Word had spread that this writer, Zora Neale Hurston, had put on a show in Central Florida that was an undeniable hit. Bob Wunsch was continuing to spread the good word of Zora's work and writing, and her short story, The Gilded Six Bits, was sent by Bob Wunsch into a magazine. That short story got Zora her first deal to publish her first novel, Jonah's Gourdvine. 
All that needed to happen was a right piece of writing got in front of the right person, and just like that, Zora was a published author. In the dedication to that first book, Jonah's Gourdvine, Zora dedicates her very first novel to Rollins College Theater professor, Bob Wunsch. She wrote, quote, To Bob Wunsch, who was one of the long-winged angels right round the throne, go gator and muddy the water, end quote. So, two things to note here. She uses the word winged, W-I-N-G-D-E-D, which is, unfortunately, not a word. It's a good word. Zora can make up whatever word she wants, but winged is not a word. I think it might be an inside joke. Uh, it's definitely a compliment. It sounds like long-winded. She said long-winged. I think it might be a pun. I think she might be making a joke. It's, it, there's, there's no way to know for sure. But the last line of the dedication has really stuck with me since I first read it. It says, go gator and muddy the water. You know what gators do in the water? They kick up sediment. Wherever they go, the, the, the ground beneath them is shaking. It's, it's changing up the way that it currently is. That, that's what gators do. They, they flop around, they move just by the very nature of a gator in a body of water means that the ecosystem is uh, a changing. It's gonna leave a mark. It seems to me that Zora was thanking and encouraging Bob Wunsch and maybe thanking and encouraging herself. Because Zora had left the Harlem Renaissance in need of a helping hand, and these two creatives were lucky to find each other. This was a time when black art was still met with hostility, and a time when black art was sort of treated like an other, sort of like a, a too anthropological, like, like the black artists who were making them were from another planet. So Zora got a chance to share the things that she saw, and it gave her more opportunities. So to me, when I read Zora saying, go gator and muddy the water, Zora is encouraging Bob, herself, her readers, and everyone to do what she does, to do what Bob did back in Orlando in the winter of 1933. Change the conversation, break the status quo, step out from the crowd, muddy the water, be a gator. Zora did that and look what followed. We know her as an author more than anything. She changed the culture with her ability to write about her experiences and the experiences of people from Eatonville. Who knows what would have happened if she hadn't put on From Sun to Sun. She might not have had that status raised in order to get that book published. It's that she took a chance to make a show. She believed that making an opera of this type would make an impact, and she was right. She found the opportunity, she took advantage of it, and she gave herself an opportunity to grow even more. It feels like that dedication was a significant turning point in the way that she thought about her own art, to me at least. Because breaking free from what had been done before is what Zora did her whole career. She would continue to publish and research and make a splash at a time when a voice like hers was easily drowned out. Instead, Zora went gator. She muddied the water. I'd love to be in that room, that theater filled with that song, that, that show. I would love to travel back in time and see it myself, but I'm not going to get that chance. But for now... We have Zora to sing us an evening song, an evening song that is in her show from sun to sun. That's good enough for me. This is Crow Dance, sung by your friend and mine, Zora Neal Hurston. Oh, mama, come see that song. Oh, 
crow, this crow gonna fly tonight. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you're here. We have got an amazing season ahead of you. So many adventures to share. So many amazing things to discover. It is going to be an amazing three months, an amazing spring together. I'd like to give a huge thank you to the Rollins College Archive. The folks there who took care of me were so friendly, so chatty, so willing to hear me talk about my ideas for the show, for this episode. (laughs) Listen to me talk about all the other Zora things I've discovered. They were so wonderful. If you need some help, go check out the Rollins College Archive. I've included some links to blogs and articles that that they provided me so that you can check out more and read even more about Rollins' history and Zora's history. Go check those out at the link in the bio. And thank you again to the Rollins. College Archive. Check them out on Instagram. I will include a link to their Instagram. They post some amazing stuff. Go check out their Instagram and see some more wonderful stuff that they have in their archive. If you like the show, please consider leaving it a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. On Apple Podcasts specifically, a five-star review helps raise the visibility for the show, and that would mean a lot to me, and it would mean a lot to know what you like about this show. You can also follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at WFM Pod. I post pictures there. I've got some images of Zora. I've even got that memo that I quoted earlier in the episode to share with you. Go check it out. It's it's so funny. So go check out the show on Instagram and you can also send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Let me know if there's something you want to hear on this show. I'm always looking for ideas. All the instrumental music used in this episode was originally composed. The poem at the beginning was from Arma Bontemps. You can find a link to that in the episode description. And the two songs sung by Zora Neale Hurston are in collections at the Library of Congress. There are links to those websites. Go check them out there. They have so many wonderful recordings of Zora singing. Go check those out as well. We've got some amazing stuff coming this year. I am so excited. It's going to be a big anniversary, and I'm going to try to make as big of a deal of it as I possibly can. You're just going to love it. It's going to be an amazing anniversary year to celebrate all the years that I've spent working on this show. Thank you. As always, thank you. I'll be back next Monday with a story about Franklin Delano Roosevelt with an event that actually happened at the exact same time as Zora was putting on her shows at Rollins. Just a coincidence, honestly. (laughs) I did not plan that when I scheduled these two episodes, but they were happening within days of each other. So we'll be talking about FDR in Miami next week. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water, and you know what? I think I'm going to start adding this into our farewells this season. We'll see. Tell me if you like it. Until next week, go Gator and muddy the water. Have a good week.